It's great to see you. Um, yeah, wow. If, first of all, I just want to say hi to everybody at Chicago Cathedral, North Shore, Crystal Lake, Rolling Meadows, and uh, Aurora. I was down at Aurora this week. What a cool little uh, campus and church. It was really great to see John Bell there. We went and had uh, some lunch at uh, a sandwich shop because that's how we roll. Um, and it is great to be back in Elgin. Like, what has it been? A long time. <laughs> I was just here recently. Well, four people think that's great. So uh, that's, that's good. I'm looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to it. Listen, um, before we get started studying God's Word, uh, and to do that, you're going to want to grab a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, okay? Before we get into that, though, I just need to give you a quick financial update. Part of the commitment that we have as the leadership of the church to constantly give, keep you up to date regarding the finances of the church and some of our obligations and also some of the things we're trying to do. Um, first thing, we just saw a video about the Chicago Partnership. We've shown you a whole bunch of stuff about Redeemer City to City and specifically the Chicago Partnership. We've been doing that in the last month so that we can show you what we really want to get involved in when it comes to um, the days ahead with church planting and some leadership development and things. So we have placed a special button on the website, and I think uh, also on our giving app, on our app, that uh, you can you can you can donate directly to that. It doesn't go to our general fund; it goes directly to the to the Chicago Partnership and to the ministry and the leadership development that we're doing with all of that. Uh, if that's something interesting to you. Uh, we're doing that largely because we want to make sure that uh, those kinds of opportunity for church planting and things are not just things that he, people here at Harvest are interested in. Uh, other times, other people are like, you know what, we'd, we'd like to see more churches, more and better churches, more and better leaders, so we can have more and better Christians around the Chicago area. And so other people from other churches and ministries are oftentimes happy to donate to that as well. The second thing is, so, so I encourage you to consider giving to that. Uh, the second thing is... Uh, our giving this year, so we're two months in, we're kind of, we're down, I think, $300,000, which is not that huge a deal given the economy and everything like that, but we just want to keep it in front of you and make you rem remember our situation as a church. We've made a stretch of faith this year so that we can try to do some cool things around the community, which is also an interesting thing that we chose to do because our church is, for those of you who don't know, our church is in pretty good debt, right? About $35 million. I have put a call in with Elon Musk. He has yet to respond, but I am hoping to hear from him this week. If I do not, um, then we, we, we will have to keep praying about that, won't we? And it's fantastic. But you know, look, Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We just need him to sell some, give us some money, and, uh, and then we'll be on our way, right? Listen, you know what? Seriously, uh, money, finances, all that kind of stuff, seriously, God's got more than we need. We just need to keep asking him for it and do our part to worship God in that, in that particular way. There's a passage in Philippians 4, I think I might have told you before. At the end of Philippians, uh, Paul says, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. That, those words are actually directly applicable to a church in Philippi that gave money to a church planter, Paul. So churches that engage in leadership development, church planting, and those things, God will take care of all our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And so we're gonna keep moving forward and doing ministry, and uh, reaching out, and we're going to see that God, pro God provide for us in ways we probably don't even imagine, right? Anyway, end of update. Listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to do the whole chapter here in the next few minutes. Um, I was interviewed this week, 
And I have been interviewed in the last several months, actually, and in each one of the interviews, it's not for a newspaper or anything like that, don't worry. It's, uh, it was for podcasts or Christian leaders have asked me the same question. Um, what is the most important characteristic of a leader? And I have given the same answer on each occasion, um, very quickly, in fact. So I think sometimes the interviewer is a little bit surprised how quickly I give that answer. What's the most important characteristic of a leader? Self-awareness. Now, I say self-awareness because I'm saying that, if, look, if you're a Christian leader and you think too highly of yourself, it's going to bleed out into everybody else around you and they will eventually hate you because nobody likes arrogance. Nobody does. Doesn't help lead things, especially doesn't help lead, lead churches, but, okay, it's also not helpful if the leader thinks that they're not as much as they actually are. You know, the parable of the, of the talents, you know, one guy gets one million, two million, and five million, and uh, the master goes away. Well, if the five million guy thinks that he's only worth one million, he's only going to produce another million, and that's not good enough, is it? We're trying to double the master's money, and so if you've been a five-talent person, and you think, oh, I'm just only a, seriously, I'm only worth a dollar, you're you're not, gonna, you're not gonna do with what God has given you what you're supposed to do with it. So self-awareness is like a super key issue when it comes to, to leaders. In fact, I've been involved in lots and lots of church planting assessments and things like that with leaders. And if we find somebody who, whose self-awareness is just horrible, we just are like, you know what, you need to go away for a little while and uh, change your mind. Like if you think you're really all that, why don't you come to my office for a while, just spend a an hour with you and you'll leave um, not feeling that way, right? Self-awareness. Best leaders know their limitations and have had to face, quite honestly, their own demons. And I've met a lot of arrogant Christian leaders, unfortunately. I was in uh, one city at one point. We were going, I was at a conference and then we were uh, visiting with one of the guys who was involved in the conference and uh, he kept driving around town with me and my friend, pointing to all these different buildings around the town saying, see that building? All my fingerprints are all over that building. See that building? My fingerprints are all over the building. When I was a youth pastor, we built that building because God always, I, I just, everything grows whenever I touch it, right? He called himself Midas at one point. I was like, oh, oh yeah, that's great. And he, he said, you know, I've started even, it's not just the growth, I've started movements, right? I'm, I'm like a movement catalyst, and uh, he told me about a movement that he started, you know, 10 years ago and a movement he started five years ago. And he says, this new thing's a movement. And so I was texting my friend at the same time. I said, I feel like I'm starting a movement. Um, uh, arrogant leaders breed arrogant followers. I mean, the, guys, the Christian church is filled with arrogance. We like to talk about how much better our church is than the people down the street, whether on the basis of doctrine or on the basis of the size of the church or on the basis of whether or not we do music the right way or our children's ministry or whatever. We kind of puff our chests out and say, you should see my church. It's not like your sad little church over there. We compare our pastors. My pastor, you know, he dresses really well, which is Somebody at Harvest will never say, right? My, 
My pastor dresses really well, or my pastor, you know, he talks really well. My pastor, he does dances in the middle. Like, whatever it is, my pastor, my pastor, my pastor. I follow him, I follow him, I follow him. See, I'm bringing all of this up, this arrogance, because I'm saying the Corinthian church, this was their issue. And it's not just an issue that they faced. Folks, we like to take whatever it is that we're involved in and throne it and shrine it and say, we're better than everyone else because we have this. Is that something that Christians ought to have? That attitude, is it something Christians ought to have? The Apostle Paul's like, no. So in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, he's going to come right after the Corinthian church. This is your problem. You're arrogant. So let me give you reasons, says the Apostle Paul, why you should not be arrogant. I think he points out three of them here. And they will challenge us, I think, regarding not just our views on church, but our views upon how we approach most things in our lives, right? What do I point to to say that I'm important? Why is it that I invest so much in the opinions of others? All right, here we go. Here's, I said three. Number one, uh, why should Christians not be arrogant? Uh, no one but God truly knows how good or bad we are. No one but God knows how good or bad we are. Right, here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us. This is referring to this. This is how one should regard us. How, Paul? As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This language of mysteries of God is a reference to the gospel that's been revealed to him. In the ages past, they didn't know this. This mystery wasn't revealed. But now, God has handed to the apostles in his Paul's time, he's handed to the apostles the stewardship of the mysteries of God, this, this gospel message. It's an interesting word, though, stewards, right? It's, it's a word that refers to like the, like, like the household staff. You guys have seen Downton Abbey? Yeah, I heard a lot of women say yes. Boys, you know you've had to see this show, right? You know full well. You had to sit there and go through all of that mess, right? And then there's a guy on the show, though. His name is Carson. He's the household manager. He's not the owner. He's not the Crawleys, which is the important family that owns the house. They have all the background and, and dignity because of their heritage. But, but Carson... He's the steward. He's the one who's been tasked with the leadership of the staff and everyone else. Paul says, that's who we are. We're the stewards. Not of a house, but of the mysteries of God. God handed us this gospel, and he said, I want you to take this gospel and steward it, use it in the way that I intend. And it is the way God intends, not the way Paul intends. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Doesn't matter if the steward has a whole bunch of people who are clapping for him. If he's not faithful to what the owner wants him to do, he's failed. It's a very small thing, he says, that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It, it's the Lord who judges me. Have you guys ever um, been seen like a football team that uh, 
has a coach that is really good. I mean, it's Chicago, so probably not. So, I mean, in, you, the football team that has a coach that's, that's really good. And then the, the players love him. He might even get to the playoffs or whatever. And then the, the, the fans really love him. Maybe he's got some sort of, you know, quirkiness that everybody thinks is amazing. And he's fantastic, good family man or whatever. Everybody loves him. But then he gets fired. Even though it looks like he succeeded all along. The fans, the players, everybody loves him, but the owner doesn't. And that's the way it works. It doesn't really matter what the fans think. And I'm sorry, I just ruined all your sports radio, right? It doesn't matter what the fans think. It doesn't even matter what the players think. What really matters is what the owner thinks. And this is what Paul's saying. Look, if I'm a steward, I'm meant to be found faithful by God, his opinion is the most, most that matters. So here, it doesn't matter if I'm judged by everyone else. Your opinion of me, says Paul, good or bad, doesn't really matter. In fact, my opinion, he says, doesn't really matter. I mean, I might think that I'm amazing. I might think I'm the best apostle going. I might think I'm the best coach ever. But it doesn't matter how I feel. What matters is how the owner feels. Matters is how the owner feels. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, because of this fact, he says, look, this is command. Don't pronounce judgment before the time. Uh, What time? Well, it's the time uh, when the Lord comes. Don't, look, guys, don't pronounce judgment about the success or failure of a Christian leader or somebody else before the Lord comes. Because you and I might think that that person's doing amazingly well. Oh, my gosh, look at how fantastic everything is excellent for them. Or they might think, ooh, I hate him so much. But it doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter what he thinks. It matters what ultimately the Lord thinks. This is a problem, actually, for a lot of us uh, pastors. This language of pronounced judgment is kind of what a judge or a jury would do at the end of a trial. Right? Here's the final verdict on this matter. And we love, we pastors, to pronounce judgment about the success or failure of our peers. I've been to so many pastor gatherings. You know, they come, they call them ministerials, those four or five pastors, or maybe 10. They all get together and they start, they start talking. We have lunch together or we pray together or something. It's a really weird vibe in the room because you wouldn't think that this is the way it works among pastors, but I'm telling you, this is how it works. The guys who have the biggest churches always walk in, how you doing? Do you know, like, how you doing? Sometimes they got their own book. You want a copy? You want a copy? I signed this one. Like, they, 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 big church, big influence. They talk about all the things that are happening in their big, big church. And the guys in the corner whose churches aren't as big or they don't have a book. They kind of cower away, and they're like, yeah, it's really great to see you. And then they go away, and they complain because they're like, I can't believe that guy. He's such a jerk. And this massive comparison going on be- between them. You, we think we're better because we have a bigger budget or a bigger church or a bigger influence. And quite honestly, everybody around thinks, yes, those are the standards by which we judge whether or not a pastor is good or bad. But are they? Does it matter what you think? Does it matter even if the pastor thinks he's amazing? No. What matters is whether or not the owner thinks he's amazing. And this is essentially Paul's point. But I really do want to apply it broadly 
I think this might help all of us a great deal. We cannot root our judgment about ourselves in the opinions of others or even in the opinions that we have of ourselves. We can only root our judgment about ourselves in the opinion of God. Anything else is a prison. Let me try to illustrate this. I want to imagine that you have a difficulty with the opinions of others. I know this will be hard for a lot of you to think that the opinions of others matter a lot to you, but, you know, oblige me for a minute. So, you have a difficulty with the opinions of others. You root most of the way you feel in their opinion of you, and so you decide one day that you're going to go, finally, you're going to go talk to a counselor about it. You sit down with a counselor, and a counselor says, well, what's the problem? And you say, well, my friend Joe and all these people and I, my workplace, they all think I'm terrible, and I'm just, it's horrible, horrible, horrible. And the counselor eventually will say, well, that's really terrible, but you know what? You, you, you shouldn't root your opinion of yourself in the viewpoints that others have of you. You should root the, your opinion of yourself on what you think of you. Here's some Disney movies that will prove it. Do you believe in yourself? You, you root everything you feel in what you think of you. That will free you from the opinions of others. And you're like, wow, that is really excellent. And so you go away and you, you realize after about three, four minutes of the freedom that this doesn't help you a whole lot because it's not just what others think of you. It's, it's what you think of you. If, if you're going to tell me that it's now based upon what I think of me, then I will think of me really well when I succeed, but I will think of me very poorly when I don't. Because that's how it works. Listen, if you're standing on the free throw line and you have to make the, you know, down by one, and you have two free throws, the clock is expired, and you have to shoot these two free throws, and if you make both of them, your team wins, and if you don't, your team loses. And you stand there and you, you make them. Everyone is going to think you're amazing. You'll think you're amazing. Not just because everyone else thinks you're amazing, but you, you succeeded. You did it. You might even get arrogant about it. Look how amazing I am. Free throws. So good. But if you miss them, You know, your team is going to be like, well, I knew that was going to happen. He's like the worst person to be on the line. Your coach is going to put his hand on the back and say, it's okay, but he's whispering to his players, it's not okay. It's not okay. Next year, why don't you try soccer? <laughs> and what will you feel about yourself? You can say, well, I don't care what the rest of you guys think. I know who I am. Who are you? The guy who missed two free throws at the end of the game. Who are you? Eh, choke artist. That's who you are, and you know you are. You can lie to yourself about it if you want. But the cold truth, when you look in the mirror, is that you're a failure. So it does not help you to root your opinion of yourself in yourself. That's exactly what Paul's saying here. He's like, look, it doesn't matter what you think, but it doesn't matter what I think. It only matters what... What God thinks, see, because that's the only place that you can be free from this prison. The only place you can be free is you can stand on that free throw line and you can know that if you make these two free throws, you can say, praise God. 
It's victory, success, it's awesome. Thank you so much, God, for the victory and success. But if you miss both the free throws, you can also stand there and say, praise God that my person, my value is not rooted in my success or failure in any particular matter. My, my person, my value is rooted in what God says about me, and I'm his child. Heir with Christ. Co, sorry, heir of God, co-heir with Christ. The way to be free. <laughs> Don't you want to be free? What God says is what ultimately matters. So you shouldn't be arrogant, in other words, because uh, arrogance is something that is rooted in what you think of you, and that doesn't mean anything. So that's Paul's basic, basic point here. So here we go. Uh, the second one in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1 or chapter 4, verse 6. Why else shouldn't we be arrogant? Because everything we have is a gift. Paul says, I've applied all these things uh, to myself and Apollos. If you've been following through it with uh, this series in 1 Corinthians, you'll know that Paul has been using him and Apollos kind of as like an object lesson, saying, Hey, look, uh, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. He, he's kind of put himself up as a model, as an example. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos uh, for, for your benefit. You know, I didn't want to talk about you guys. I used myself as an example because if I talked about you guys, you might get a little angry. That you may learn by us not to go beyond what, what's written. That none of you, and here's his big push. The reason I did this and the reason I'm talking about all these things about why Paul and Apollos and why he just said about only God's view matters is that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. Do you love that, puffed up? Seriously, if I came into the room today when I was walking in here and I was walking this way, you'd be like, well, he likes him some, Jeff, right? But if I came in, down here, this is how people do, right? You caved in your chest. This is a great word. I love it. You should not, says Paul, be puffed up. What do you have to be puffed up about? Well, all the stuff that I'm amazing at, man, that's what I have to be puffed up. Where did all that stuff come from, though? <laughs> For who sees anything different in you? This little, this little uh, phrase is basically a, a Greek idiom, and it, it, it means, um, uh, what gives you the right to have these judgments anyway? Who do you think you are? Like, seriously, who do you think you are to think you're so amazing? You're all puffed up. Like, what did you have that you didn't receive? And if then you received it, oh, I don't know where I am now. Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see his point? What? Okay, here, here's the way it works. You're not allowed to boast about something that you did not earn. That's how, that's how it works. If I give you a gift at Christmas morning, and you hold this gift, and you open it up, and you look at your brother and go, in your face! Like, I don't, wait a minute, what, what? You didn't do anything to receive the gift. Your brother's got his own gift. I, everything has basically been given to you. 
What do you have that you did not receive? My son played baseball for so many years. I've had so many baseball experiences, but I do remember he made to the provincial final, the state final on one particular occasion, and uh, there was this kid who was 13 years old. Okay, this, this particular age, U13, is the age when you have some kids on the team who are like four foot two, you know? Hey, guys, how's it going? And they're playing shortstop, right? Barely get the ball to first base. And then you have, you have the guy at first base who's like, hey, how you doing? He's got like a big beard. And so there's this, they're all in the, in the league together, okay? Well, this one pitcher that we had to go against, he was uh, about six foot three, and, I mean, the field, of course, is still really small, right? It's the, the plate and the, and the mound are like 20 feet apart, so he can stride and touch the home plate or the ball, right? But he could throw, man. He, he could throw, just pound these fastballs in, and our kids are like, okay, he threw it here. You know, and this guy, and when he strikes these kids out, he strikes out a kid who's like four foot two, you know? who's like five years away from puberty, and he, he stands on the edge of the mound, and he goes, eh, 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 and oh, my word, every parent on our team was like, oh. Do you know what you're thinking? Who do you think you are? Why are we saying that? Seriously, who do you think you are? Why, the reason we're saying that is half the parents who were there were like, I was that guy. And then two years later, I couldn't even get on the team. What are you doing standing there boasting and taunting like that The only reason you're able to strike them out is because you have a really big dad and a really big mom, and in God's providence, you grew early before all the others did, and now you have the audacity to stand on the mound and go, yeah, in your face, like me playing basketball, but it's a bunch of little kids, you know, and swatting the ball and going, yeah, what's up, you know? What? What? If you were watching this, you'd you'd be like, what is deal. You know, doesn't he realize the only reason he's able to swat the ball is because they're little and he's enormous? I'm a, I dunked the ball. You're 7-12. I mean, what are you talking about? If you can't dunk the ball, what do you have that you have not received? Seriously, seriously what, have you, what do you have that you have not received? Donald Miller is a writer. He wrote a whole bunch of books kind of in the early 2000s. One of them was called Searching for God Knows What. And in it, he has this really interesting thought, uh, this, this interesting kind of paradigm. He, he suggests, in this thought experiment, he suggests that the world that we inhabit is basically like all of us are in a lifeboat. Like, so think the Titanic is going down and all of us are in a lifeboat. And we're trying to give, there's too many people and not enough boat. So we have to give arguments, at least implicitly or in our own minds, on why it is that we belong in the boat. Why should we not be thrown overboard? And so all of us have reasons that we live by, that we point to and say, see, this is the reason you shouldn't throw me out of the boat. I'll give you some of my reasons, right? Um, I'm pretty good at talking. And of course, out in the middle of the ocean, it's going to be really helpful, right? You guys, every once in a while, I want a motivational speech on how we're going to make it. So I can, I can talk. Um, I have a lot of education. And who doesn't want a doctor out in the middle, like a, a real doctor, in the middle 
in the middle of the ocean, like at one point, one of you guys are going to be thinking to yourself, you know what I, I need right now? I need, to know, um, I need to know a little bit about the Greek tense of that word. So, yeah, but I'm smart. I mean, I, I have that. I can debate. It's gone, really helped my marriage a lot. I can debate. I'm really good with the debating, and, and um, I'm really fast. I'm not really fast. I'm amazingly handsome. Not that either. But these are things that all of us point to, right? I'm really qualified. I'm, I'm really smart. I'm good on computers. Well, I'm really pretty. Why do I belong? Why, what, what are the things that I point to to say, these things make me valuable? Therefore, you should not cast me into the ocean. These things are what really matter about me. And Donald Miller's saying, everybody's got these. We don't say them out loud, but we live by them. They're the things that when you go home and you're sad at night, you kind of rehearse to yourself and say, yeah, but at least that guy is not like this. If you get in an argument with somebody else, you're like, oh, but at least I'm not fat. As if that has anything to do with anything. At least I'm not fat, right? I'm thin, therefore I stay in the boat. But, okay, so but this is the mentality we have. Here's my point. Every single thing you point to, every one of them, your beauty, your speed, your good, you know, your good manners, your like, whatever, your smarts, all given to you. All given to you. What do you have that has not been given to you? And if it's been given to you, why do you boast as if it wasn't given? The, the point is that true Christian people, more than anybody else in the world, recognize that they're the ones who understand how much they've received from God and how much they were due, zero, and received everything. We, among all people in the world, should be the least arrogant people anywhere. When we walk into a room, our goal is not to try to prove whether or not we belong there. Our goal is not to try to prove that we're better than anyone else. We're not trying to compete with anybody. We go into the room recognizing that if anything good happens here, it's because the grace of God has been on me, just like everything that's happened that's been good to me up to this point. I dare say, unfortunately, that that doesn't always translate into the kinds of meetings I have with Christians, but it ought to. It absolutely ought to. What do you have that hasn't been given to you? And if it's been given to you, why are you boasting as if it hasn't been? Last one. Why should we not be arrogant? Uh, look, it's just not who we are. <laughs> and by who we are, I mean uh, as Christians. Um, Paul writes, look, already you have all you want. Already, you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. I just want you to see this. You guys have everything you want. You've become rich. You guys are kings. He's being sarcastic. He's being sarcastic. This is what they thought of themselves, right? This is what arrogant people think of themselves. We're the kings. We're rich. We have everything we need right here. And Paul's like, yeah, I get it. You guys view yourselves that way. I, I, I understand um, what's interesting about the... Um, What's interesting about the, uh, the Corinthians is they had in what we call in theological terms an over-realized eschatology. Don't worry about what that means. I'm going to show you. You're, you're going to love this diagram. You've seen it before somewhere, right? So the age to come 
and the age that's passing away. Jesus came the first time, inaugurated the age to come, or something that we call the kingdom of God. Okay? And he will culminate it or finalize it when he returns the second time. So here's what you can say. We are all, because we live here right now, we are already in the kingdom. Yep. That's right. We're already in the kingdom. But we're also not yet fully in the kingdom, right? There's going to be a day that's coming that we're going to be free from the age that's passing away, the kingdom of this world, all of its oppression and all of its hatred and all of its wars. We're going to be in the kingdom. But we're already in the kingdom, but not yet totally in the kingdom. Here's what the Corinthians were doing. They were saying, yeah, but we have way more already than not yet. Like, the not yet is like a little bit. Dude, we're like just outside the door of the throne room. That's how much we have. Other Christians, maybe not so much. But we are amazing. You see this kind of attitude, quite honestly, in the, in, in the modern church among prosperity teachers. The idea is, hey, man, we're, you guys are already rich. You're kings. Every day's a Friday. You should live your best life now. Because you can. Why? Because we're already in the kingdom. You guys ever read the stuff that's promised for people who are in the kingdom of God? Wealth, excess, prosperity. If you're not having that in the here and now, something's wrong. That's the Corinthian attitude. That's the Corinthian attitude. So Paul comes along and says, yeah, yep, that's what you guys think. You already have all you want. You've become rich. You think of yourself as kings. (laughs) And then he said. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Oh, how I wish that that's the way it worked. That you guys were right and we were already in the kingdom fully. I wish. But we're not. He says, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. I underlined those three things because all of them come from the language of the arena. So here's the way it used to work. If you were a great king, and you would go off, and you'd fight a battle, and you'd win the battle, you would have some POWs, right? You would also, because you go won the battle, you'd find out all of the, where, where the gold was held, where all the art was held, and you'd go and you'd get all that art, and you'd get all that gold, and you'd bring it with you along with the POWs, and when you finally got back to your kingdom... So your home city, you would find the biggest stadium you had, right? The soldier field of the land, and you would do a procession. Everybody would come for this one, right? It's like a national parade. Everyone comes, they all sit in the stadium, watching on as the king walks in, in his full array, with all of his attendants and his generals, and then behind them, would be, it's time, to show, it's time to show the wealth. It's time to show the riches. So you have gold pots and all these pearls. I mean, everything you can find, just massive wealth on carts that they walk through the stadium. And then behind that, you have the prisoners. Now the prisoners, once they get into the, into the stadium, the king will go up, sit in his seat, at least in the Roman world, he'd go and sit in his seat, they'd take the wealth, put it out of the kingdom, and then they'd say uh, to the prisoners, hunger games, 
You guys can fight each other. There's some weaponry around the stadium. Just fight each other, and whoever comes out on top still gets to live. Go, gladiator. In fact, if you get really good at this, you might actually hire you as a gladiator and then just throw you into the, into the thing just for fun when other people aren't captured. They sometimes will just throw a lion in there, you know, because nothing says fun like a lion. You know, throw him in there. Well, we'll see what happens. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you look, look you, you Corinthians, in this whole model, I get it. You guys think that you're kings. You think you're at the front of the procession. In fact, you guys think that you belong in the stands with the kings. You've got box seats. You're the privileged ones. You're the ones who think that the world is your oyster and every day is a Friday. But Paul's like, we aren't. The way you describe the Christian life is not the way that we apostles experience it. That the true committed Christian people, we don't experience it that way. Because we are exhibited as last of all, like men sentenced to death. We become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Look, we are fools for Christ's sake. Oh, but you're wise in Christ. You're wise. You guys are the wise one, but we're the fools. We are the weak ones, but you're strong. You're held in high honor, but we, we, we're held in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and we thirst and we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, reviled, persecuted. When slandered, we entreat, we've become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things, the scum of the world. And those, those words actually in Greek are used to describe the stuff that comes off your body, right, when you're really dirty. So I just, in your minds, I want you to think about the drain in your bathroom and the, num- the amount of hair that is in that drain. And every once in a while, you got to go down there and you get it and you pull it all out. And it's like, whoa, we could like block out the sun with this. And then you put it in the... My wife can't do this for her own hair because she starts throwing up. As if I'm thrilled with it. You know what I mean? You do it. You won't throw up. <laughs> I might. Right? But that's what he's saying. Look, you don't understand. You guys think that you're in the box seats. You think that you're the kings. You think you're wise. You think, every, you think that the Christian life is going to be all cakewalks and daisies. But we are living examples, he said, of what's real. And what's real is the world treats us like the hair clog. You guys, in other words, Corinthians, need to adjust your expectations regarding what life is going to bring to you. Man, if there's a word that the Christian church in the West needs to hear, there it is. I have a friend, I have a friend who I was in a class with, and he said to me one day, um, we were praying for all sorts of different things. I've shared this several times to people. I, I, we were praying for all sorts of different things. When a lot of it was, has to do, you know, with, with, with us in seminary and stuff at that age. Everybody's like, well, my, my aunt's got a bad ankle, or my, you know, it's always health-related stuff, which is, which is fine and important to pray for. But the guy sitting next to me, he's actually from the Ukraine, Long before this was an issue, he's sitting there in the Ukraine, and he kept, he kept kind of shaking his head while the, the prayer requests are going on. Anyway, we pray, 
at the end, he was, he was visibly agitated. So I leaned over to him and I said, what's wrong? And he says, oh, you Americans, life surprises you. That sounded more Irish, but that's, I tried. <laughs> but think about what he's saying there, right? Life surprises you. Like you can somehow think that a whole world is just going to be just easy and happy and everything's always going to go right for you. But it, that's, that's actually not how it, how it works. Paul, he absolutely tries this argument. He says, look, I don't write these things to you guys. You, you need to change your expectations about the Christian life. And I know this is going to be shocking to you. I don't write these things to make you ashamed but I want to admonish you as my beloved children. Because for though, you, look, you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. The difference between a guide and a father, a guide in those days was the person who escorted your child from your home to the school and back. Or in our current climate, maybe a babysitter. You guys have lots of babysitters, but you only have one father. And there's a significant difference from Paul's point of view between a babysitter and a father the babysitter's like, you know, if things get hot, they're probably going to be like, yeah, I'm out. I don't, these kids drive me crazy anyway. I'm, I'm done. The babysitter, when they correct you, is doing it out of frustration and anger. What are you doing, you stinking snot-nosed kid? But when the father corrects you, he does it for your good. And Paul's like, I'm not correcting you like the babysitter. I'm correcting you like a father. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, I urge you then be imitators of me. What do you mean? Recognize that your life is like what I just described. That life in this present world is difficult. It should not surprise you. You've duped yourselves into thinking that everything's going to be just awesome. That's why I sent you Timothy, my, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. As I teach them, look, I teach them everywhere in every church. You guys aren't unique. I say this to everybody. Some of you are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but look, I'm going to come to you soon, <laughs> and the, if the Lord wills, and I'm going to find out, not, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Oh, talk is cheap. You, want, you guys want to stand over against me? I'm a coming. Kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you What do you wish? that I come to you with a rod or with love and the spirit of gentleness. Look, his point is really clear. The life of ease is not the life of a Christian. We are in the danger of the arena, not in the safety of the box seats. Please, suburban Christians, American, economically blessed, I can drive into my garage, shut the door, and if anything goes wrong, I have enough insurance to cover it. Christians, please hear me. What we experience and what we end up assuming we're going to experience, the ease, the luxury, not normal. Not normal. So look, let me finish with just a couple of applications as I urge you to think about how that should change your thinking. Okay, so here, here's the first one. Um, please don't be duped by the prosperity people's promises. Please don't be duped. Look, you guys are like, well, I'm not gonna, I, don't, I think all that rich stuff is, yeah, but don't let it even influence you. 
Don't, don't get to the point where you're sitting there and bad things start happening to you and you think, what is God doing? What do you mean, what is God doing? This is what life looks like as you follow Christ. If you want to know what it looks like, read that passage again. Persecuted and troubled and all, that's normal. People are going to give you stink eye for following Christ. You're going to suffer in the present age. It's what it means to follow Christ, quite honestly. There was this great story I heard one time about this, um, about this uh, soldier. He was on one side of a fence, and he, they were in the middle of war. And he heard something rustling on the other side. He froze. Nobody else was around him, so he started to inch down the fence. And every inch he took down the fence, the thing on the other side was inching. He's like, oh, man. Kept going down to the end of the fence. He noticed that there was an end to the wood fence at the end, and he just kept inching and inching and inching, and eventually he gets to the end, and the thing on the other side had tracked him the whole way. So he counts, three, two, one. And he jumps to the side, and he starts unloading with his gun. And then he looks up as the smoke clears, and there he just shot a pig. Now, listen, you have to imagine what it was like for the pig, Right? He hears something on the other side, and it's like, oh, food? And so he inches down, inches down, inches down, inches down, jumps out, and the guy shoots him. There's a moral to this. You ready for, my, ready for the moral to the story? If you aren't aware you're in a battle, you'll quickly become bacon. <laughs> Think about it, though. The people who are easily slaughtered in the midst of the battle and who fail to persevere are the people who don't know the battle is happening. They don't gird up themselves. They don't prepare for battle. They don't think, hey, I'm going to get out of bed this morning and this is going to be a bit of a fight to follow Jesus today. They just kind of, and when things go wrong, they're like, what are you doing, God? I thought the deal was I follow you and you give me the stuff. Now, that wasn't the deal. In fact, the deal was, you follow me and you will share in my sufferings, which is my second application. Remember that those who suffer with Christ will also be raised with him. That those who share in the suffering of Christ will also be raised with him. Just as, look, I'm going to show you this. 1 Peter 4.12, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. Oh, what's happening to me? I thought I was a Christian. Uh, no, rejoice instead insofar as if you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed because those who share in the sufferings of Christ, those who are unified with Christ in suffering are also unified with Christ in glory. You want to know if you are a genuine Christian? Are you sharing in the sufferings of Christ? Yes. You're on your way to glory. Paul Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And we say, praise God, I'm an heir, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Look. I want you to imagine that uh, I'm going to go to my office here in Elgin, and I'm going to leave you a trail map 
to get there because that's what you're going to need to get to my office from here. And I leave you a trail map and I say, okay, so here's what you have to do. You gotta go down the hall and you're gonna go up a pair of stairs and you're gonna go over across a little bit of bridge and then when you get the bridge, you're gonna think, where in the world am I? You're in a school. But as you go down the hallway, you'll notice there's wood on the walls and then you get down and there's gonna be a cafeteria. And then when you see the cafeteria, and if you keep going, there'll be more wood on the walls and you'll be like, this is deja vu. I just was in this room. You're, no, it's a new room. And you're going to keep going, and at the end of that hallway, there's a staircase, and you're going to climb up the staircase forever. And then when you get to the very top of that staircase, you're going to have to actually continue to go down the hall, go through this door that seems like it's not going anywhere, but it actually is going somewhere. And then you go down the hall, you take a left-hand turn. My office is the one in the middle. I'll be sitting in the chair. You, you, okay, so you say to yourself, okay, I've written it down for you. You start following the thing. You notice the wood walls. You notice the cafeteria, you start climbing the stairs and you're like, if you're experiencing along the ways all the things that I told you you that you would experience, you know for sure that you are on the way to my office, heaven. So, So listen, just listen. If you are experiencing the things that Jesus said you would experience by following him, if you are experiencing the sorrow and the heartache and the difficulty of persevering in the faith, if your heart is breaking at people who turn away from you like they turned away from Jesus, if you're struggling to figure out how you're going to make sense of all of this stuff like Jesus told you that you would experience when you lived in this present evil age, and as citizens of the kingdom, if you're experiencing all of that, here's what that tells you. You're on your way. You're on your way to sharing in his glory. So much. There's no need to complain. There's no need to complain. We have a glorious future ahead of us. So let's run the race with perseverance, even on the stairs. We pray for us. Father, I'm so thankful for your goodness and for um, reality. So many of us, Father, walk away from the faith because we think, we think that we're experiencing, that God let us down somehow, as if he told us sometime that, hey, everything's gonna be awesome. It will be awesome, Father. But the way to that awesome is through the difficulty. And I pray, Father, that we would understand that's the way of Jesus. And ultimately, that's the way of those who are are unified with him. And I pray, Lord, that you would gird up our knees, give us straight backs, that you would grant us the grace of courage and boldness and perseverance, Father, as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus who's gone before us and who then is with us by the power of the Spirit to make us finally reach that place in joy. It's not yet, Father. It's already, but it's not yet, Father. So find us faithful, Father, not in the eyes of everybody around us, not in our own eyes even, but in yours. And come, Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name.